Thanks for tuning in to the Renew Life Church Lubbock podcast today. We hope this message encourages you as you allow God's word and his presence to change your life. Hey, welcome to church. My name is Keith. I'm the campus pastor here. We're so glad that you're at Renew Life today. Anybody, we got any leftovers from first service? Raise your hand. Y'all got a bigger mansion in heaven. I'm just saying. Not that you don't, other people, but you just, you weren't here during first service because you're like me and you like to sleep in. See, I've, if I could sleep in, I'd have church at, at 11 and 1 o'clock if it was my, okay, man, moving on. Hey, I know, isn't that bad? It is, it is the way that I am, though. Hey, uh, we are. We're so glad that you're with us today. Um, we have a, a special guest speaker. His name is Ed Trout. He, uh, he lives in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, is just an amazing man of God. Grew up in South Africa. He's going to tell you um, all about all about that. Well, maybe a little bit. But here's the thing: How many of you know when you preach with an accent, it just feels like there's more God on it? I so wish I had one. I so wish I had an accent, but I don't. I just got my Texas something going on. You know what I mean? Uh, but he has done ministry all over the world. Continues to do so. Um, he shared this. He averages 28 meetings a month just preaching the gospel. All he cares about is the kingdom of God and advancing the kingdom. And he so loves the local church. And uh, so he's, he's going to teach for a little bit this morning and then get into some prophecy. And it's just going to be a really, really fun Sunday. So if you guys would put your hands together for uh, Prophet Ed Trout. So if you were not here in the first service, I will not be sharing the same message so if you want to go and get this, the CD, it's only $1,000 for the CD. You have to. I'm kidding. I don't know if they even charge for it. I'm not sure. All right. Thank you for letting me be here. I count it a great privilege always to be here at this, uh, at you, at this church, this place. These people are wonderful. Is it New Life? Is that what it's called? New, 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 renew Life. Renew Life, yes. All right. So I'm reading from the book of Judges this morning. I'm teaching the second session out of Judges, chapter 6. So if you'll read with me, we can learn a lot from things in the Old Testament, the relationship between man, Israel, and God. A lot of interesting things in God's temperament, God's nature, God's attitude, God's heart. And this is about Gideon. You may have heard of Gideon in your Sunday school days or even in your own Bible study time. But it starts in chapter 6, verse 1, like this. The Israelites, and I didn't know that I had an accent. I thought I spoke pretty much the way God did. Because <laughs> when I hear him, he sounds just like me. <laughs> the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. These are God's people doing evil. What did they do? And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of the Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. Neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. 
They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out, the Lord, because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. And I delivered you from the hand of all the oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came down in verse 11 and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Bizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said to him, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about what they said? Do not did the Lord bring us up out of, out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of the Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Go in the strength you have and save Israel. And he, of course, he says, I am the least. He tells the angel, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. When you say least, he's the youngest. He's the baby of the family. The angel said, I'll be with you. And you will strike all the Midianites, leaving none alive. That's pretty powerful prophecy, but very difficult to apply to a young kid in his life. Very strange. It puzzled me for a long time when God or the angel said to him, go in your strength. You wonder what strength did this young boy have? What, could he, what was God seeing in Gideon? Because if you look at Gideon's story as it unfolds, he wasn't full of faith. He wasn't physically strong. What was the angel referring to? Go in your strength. Because I know we're looking at this point, this time in America. We're looking for Gideons to strike down the Amorites or Amalekites that are spiritually coming against us, that are becoming more and more carnal in our nation. We're looking for Gideons that will help us, that will lead us. And God picked, of all the people in Israel, God picks this boy, this young boy, and calls him a great warrior. He projects on him his future. When God looks at us, he doesn't see what we always see. He sees what can be and is going to be in the future. And he looks on the inside. When God called David a man of his own heart, he was a teenage boy taking care of sheep. So how did God call him a man and then after his own heart? How did God have time to establish the integrity or the faithfulness of this heart? Where was the time for that? God looks in, in the heart and knows so much. 
And God's looking for people that have Gideon's strength. So I had to puzzle. When I look at the story, Gideon tells the angel, well, let me at least prepare for you. And he goes and gets some flour and he makes unleavened bread. And then he gets some meat and some broth. And he comes and the angel says, bring it, bring it here. But he asks the, he asks the, asks the angel for a sign because the angel wants him to do something great. So often when you feel God's spoken to you and you no one else has heard it, you're just so unsure of yourself, you need somehow a prophetic word or some confirmation. You've said to God, if I only know it's you, if I just can be sure it's you, you need that reassurance. And we go after the fourth and fifth and sixth confirmation, we're still sometimes dubious. But either way, he brings them the broth, the bread, and the meat, and the angel says, put it in that rock over there. And he puts it on there, and he ta- the angel takes this, this rod, and he strikes it against the rock, and there's an explosion and flames. And all of it's consumed in an instant, and the angel's gone. And he's looking around in such dismay and panic. When the angel comes back and shows himself, he's afraid because he realized he thinks he's seen the face of God, and he thought he's going to die. And the angel says, no, pull yourself together. Take it down a notch. You're not going to die. Suck it up, boy. You're okay, because he's panicking, because Jews know they cannot see God and live. And he, tell, he starts to instruct him that he's going to lead God's people. So he says, before you do anything, I need you to go to your father's house. And I want you to go destroy the altar to Baal and this Asaph pole. Bring it down. And the Bible says Gideon was afraid what might happen, so he did it at nighttime, even though he was instructed by God. And he took 20, or was it 10, 10 of his servants. So this is not small, insignificant family. They had servants, so there were 10 of them, and he brings down the altar. And the next morning, there is such a commotion as the people of the town find out that Gideon has done this. They first ask who, and they find out it's him, and they go to his father's house, Joash, and said. Give me that boy. We want to we kill him. And his father defends him. Now, what's troubling my heart is Joash is older. He's got several kids. Because Gideon's his youngest. He's an Israelite. He's a man of God. And yet he's built an altar to this foul god called Baal and Asaph pole, these different gods. Why would you do that? Why didn't God pick him then to be the strong warrior of God? It seems to me when God was looking for a warrior or someone he could send, that it wasn't their confidence, their boldness, their height, their strength. It was just like David, an attitude of heart. And this boy had not been corrupted like his dad, had not been corrupted by his dad, had not taken on his dad's culture. His dad was a Jew that had become compromised with these altars and foreign gods. I know he didn't take it on because when the angel said, God is with you, he begins to testify in a negative way about God. What if God is with us? And we heard so often that God delivered us out of the hand of the Egyptians. Then why are we doing this? His expectancy is still that God's going to help him. His expectancy is not in Baal and not in Asaph. His expectancy is still that God should be helping us. 
He's not looking to other gods. He's holding God accountable in his heart as young as he is because he believes there is one God. Are you, is he not the God? Where is the God that delivered us from Egypt? He begins to recite that, which tells me in his heart that's what his strength was. It wasn't his military training, which he didn't have. It wasn't his, his confidence or his, his fearlessness because he was scared to go and bring that altar down. He had to do it at nighttime secretly. He had all kinds of struggles in his inner man, but the one thing it looks to me he did have that nobody else had was he was uncorrupted. It seems to me we're looking for someone in America that will put God first, that will love God above other things, that there'll be no foreign gods. You say, well, we don't have an altar to Baal or Asaph. No, we don't have a physical one. But I've seen people put everything aside to go to watch sport and not go to church. I've seen people spend hours at a movie theater and refuse to sit longer than an hour in church. I've seen people struggle to go to church. They'd rather watch it on the internet or whatever it might be. Any excuse to neglect the gathering of the saints. And God told us not to, not to neglect it. It's, you can't do church on the internet. Because there's an anointing in the house Amen. that you don't get on the internet. If there's nothing else, it's one thing, but now you can gather. You don't want to neglect it. It takes a real effort to get in your car, to get dressed, to brush your teeth, to get yourself showered. Well, it takes effort to get there. And you're tired, you're working the whole week, you don't want to go Sunday too. Well, it's that effort you make that God responds to. When you're serious about the Lord. If you're serious about God and you come with a hungry heart, not just fulfilling your duty, you feel like you feel good, you can carry on the rest of the week, act like a good Christian, but you really want something from God, coming with an expectancy, God's going to do something for you. It's not dependent upon the pastor or Ed Trout. It's dependent on him because he's always got a plan. God's always got a plan. And this Gideon had definitely... One thing that going for him, he had not yet become compromised. And so he could bring down the altar. His dad could have done it any time, but he just never did. What did bless my heart, that when they wanted to kill him, Joash, the father, defends him. He says, surely, if you want to kill him, surely Baal can take care of himself. He doesn't need you to help him. And they get all mad and they give Oh, Gideon, a different name, which means an enemy of, of Baal, which is a good name to have. And so he begins on his journey to begin to do what God says and bring down these Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites were 100,000, and Gideon was able to gather 32,000 soldiers. That's, that's quite an army, but still not even half of the Amalekites. God says, I think you have too many. I think we have too little, if you ask me, God. Wasn't asking you. Just go ahead and reduce them. And he gets down to 20,000. That's still a lot of soldiers, but not in comparison to the Malachites. So, yeah, you've got too many. So he takes them to the watering hole. He says, now, watch them drink. The ones that go down to drink, get rid of them. The ones that drink with, the, with their hands and watching for the enemy, let them stay. Only 300 out of all the 32,000 stayed. And God says, you got your army. I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. I'm taking 300 men to fight 100,000. I think we are on the losing team. But this is the thing. God said, go in your strength. 
I will be with you. You will strike down the Malachites all at once. You'll destroy them. It sounds so out there that he could not believe. He had to, he was just not confident. Even though he was completely God's, he had to ask for a fleece. And you'd think that a fleece was, people often they do that. You think, well, come on, pull yourself. Where's your faith? But God's got a lot of tolerance because his heart's right. And he puts out a fleece and says, God, you've got to confirm. I've got to be sure it's you. And if everything's wet and this thing is dry, I'll know it's you. Next day, hey, this is dry and everything's wet. You think that would, that's what you asked for, right? Yeah, but can we do this one more time? Let's do it the, let's do it the other way around. How about, how about this thing being sopping wet and everything else is dry? Next morning gets up, sure enough, that fleece is there. Exactly as God said. And he still think you'd have this confidence, but he was with 300 people still as nervous. It's amazing to me how God has to change our minds sometimes. What do you use to change the way you see yourself? Even King David, which is strange to me, there's an interesting man. Not sure who his mother was, but he's born eighth child, red complexion. And he goes a very lonely journey. His brothers have no regard for him. His dad has no regard for him. And he becomes this chaste warrior because he's killed Goliath. And the king is trying to kill him. 20 years he's got a little army of his own and he's always in, he's always in trouble until finally. And you know they prophesied of him. Samuel, the prophet of the day, prophesied in front of his dad and brothers he'd be king. The governor of Israel also prophesied over him. And then the leaders of Judah prophesied over him. So he had three prophecies that he'd be king. And he still didn't see himself that way. Funny thing, after all that, 20 years. If I read in the book of 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 5, I think it's verse 11, it says that the king of Syria sent builders with materials, with building materials, with wood and different mortar to build David a palace. And the scripture says, and then David perceived that God had made him king of Israel. He's watching them building a palace and he's going, I'm getting a palace. I must not be a shepherd anymore. It's amazing what God will use. All the prophecies didn't change his mind. It took a foreign king to build him a palace for him to feel different about himself. And the same with Gideon. Gideon didn't have the confidence with the fleeces and all the signs and all the hand of God. It took him going into the enemy's camp disguised to hear them talk amongst themselves about a dream. Of all things, a dream. I had such a dream last night. One of these Amalekites says, I saw a barley loaf rolling down the hill and smashing my tent. The other one says, that must be the army of Gideon coming to destroy us. When Gideon hears this, faith arises in his soul. And he's, now we're going to do this. And he lines up those 300 men, no, no weapons. He's got a fackle in one hand and a, and a shafar in the other. And, and at nighttime, they blow the shafar with the fackles. And those Amalekites destroyed each other. There was nothing left. But it took the enemy's fear. took a strange message uh, you never thought possible. And God has to do things in our lives too because we sit in the way we see ourselves. My mother told me that my childhood were the best days of my life. I've learned that your childhood is something you spend the rest of your life trying to fix. 
because you have so little material to work with as a child, you have no tools. When you get hurt, offended, go through crises, and you're, as a child, you have no experience. You have nothing to help process that. It takes years to develop those skills and tools to work through all these difficult things. And as a child, and it's so exaggerated, all the things that happen at school, your friend, your family, and it takes years to heal those things. And There are people in this room that are still trying to please mom and dad, even though their dad could be dead already, you're still trying to please dad, you're trying to prove dad wrong, that you're not a loser, that you're not a, a failure. You're still trying to change what was said, even flippantly, maybe only once. Just the words that stayed with you as a child, because everything affects you so much as a young child. And no matter where you are, and if you're a parent too, your children are affected by everything you say and do. It's part of the journey. And God is, that's why Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord's upon me to heal the broken heart. The Greek word is traumatized. So we have trauma. And Jesus came to heal that in your brain because just life has got so many challenges as a child. You, as a kid, you have nothing to process. And it's getting worse as life goes on. The schools, our school system is a nightmare. Those kids go through such difficulty. They try to fight bullying, but there's still so many negative constantly and still bullies. Still people do it for various reasons and at least scars on people's lives and souls. And, and God wants to heal all of it. And he'll use the strangest things to fix it. He'll use the strangest things to change your mind that you can see yourself the way God sees you. If people swing, they, when they're very insecure, they might become overconfident when they get built up because they don't know how to get the balance and there's always the extremities. And, but you've got to see yourself, not, don't think more of yourself than, than you ought to, the scripture says, and don't think less of yourself. Don't be falsely humble. There's got to be a way that you can see yourself the way God sees you. And the only way that can happen, the more you cling to him, the more you follow him and make him your friend, your master, your Lord, the more of him you have in you, the easier that gets. You start to see yourself. And the first thing I teach people that I disciple, one of the first lessons is to become separated, divorced, segregated, broken from people's opinions. Because it's the most ridiculous thing the older I've become, that you don't rise and fall what people think and say. They, people are shallow and fickle. They, they like you today, hate you tomorrow. They're up and down, up and down. They don't know what they want. Paul lands on an island that's supposed to be Malta. And these Malteans are supposed to be friendly and kind and nice people. And it's raining, so Paul helps them gather these, these sticks and wooden. And they make a big fire because it's so wet and damp and miserable. And out comes a snake. The fire drives the snake out. It doesn't just brush past him or just bite him. It hangs off his hand. He's just come through a storm, and these Malteans who don't know him, Immediately have an opinion. He must be a bad man. Because he escaped the storm, but the snakes got him. He's got what he deserved. People always think there's a reason why something happens in your life. The scripture says the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. It rains. Now, there's some things that you have sown that you reap. It's true. God's not mocked. What a man sows, he must reap. But there are things that happen that just happen because life happened wasn't a spiritual reason to it. It just happened. It happens to the good, good godly people get cancer. Evil people get rich. There's no explaining stuff. It just happens. 
Don't try and find always a reason to everything or a spiritual thing to things that just happen in life. You'll know when you're spiritual when God is free speaking to you. But life happens and, and the way we respond. And so if people's opinions can always affect us, or always think there's a reason why things happen, the devil's going to play havoc with your spiritual life. He's going to constantly torment you about everything and tell you how bad you are. Now God's pleased with you. Now God's not. And then there's all these different looking for reasons always that are happening. It's not true. You are the prize possession of the Almighty. You must understand that when you watch any animal reproduce, you know what's coming out of that animal. But when God said, let us... Us, make man in our image. He had really made animals. He didn't make animals in anything to do with him. Nothing. They were there for service. He didn't even make an angel. Let us make angels in our image. No, he made only one. Now, you look in the mirror. That's not God's image. That's a house that you're living in because you're a spirit living in the body. And so you are an immortal spirit inside of you, and you're just living in a carbon made body because you're temporary passing through because God wants to give you a chance to get to know him before you have an immortal body and get messed up. That's what he said. He said when he saw them take of, this, take of that fruit and begin to sin and darkness came in their soul, he put an angel, the flaming sword in Genesis, to prevent them. He said, let them not go back in the garden lest they eat of the tree of life in this state. It was his goodness and kindness to keep you from living in that state eternally. That's why you must be glad you're going to have a new body. Amen. Don't cling to this body because it's temporarily just passing through. Are you hearing me? You're going to have a most magnificent. But your journey here is of vital importance. And people's opinions are so fickle and shallow. They like you today, don't like you tomorrow. And these same Malteans that said he's a bad guy, when the snake didn't kill him, they called him a god. It's like, what is wrong with you people? You think he's a devil, now you think he's a god. Make up your mind. What is he? That people change all the time. You cannot go by people's opinions. The older I become, the more I've learned this to become a truth in my soul. When you have a relationship with someone and people have value to you, you'll nurture that relationship because they have value. They either your friend or family or they, they produce or they provide or something. There's something they bring to the table. But the older I've become... I don't do things to preserve a relationship because they have value to me. My whole value system is in the Lord personally. So when I preserve a relationship, it's because I want to do what God wants and I see, want to see them through the way God sees them. So I do all I can to protect that relationship because it's important to God. So it's Him I'm trying to please, not the people. And that's how I've grown. So I've grown so beyond all these things. And the more I learn about him, you know, when you have an altercation, people argue. Watch the couple, a married couple ever argue. It's all about who's right. There's no resolve because they've got to, someone, has, someone has to say, you're right, to end, the, to end that conversation, to end that fight. When you tell your partner, no, you're right, my bad, you, there's no more fight. They lose, they lose all their argument, right? They're, gonna, they're, always gonna, they're always have to be right. But when you take blame and take the responsibility, you end that. But the more Christ-like you become, the more natural it becomes for you to gravitate towards taking blame when it's not even yours. Now, that's going to be much too for you for the time being. I'm going to try and just elaborate a little bit for you so you understand. Jesus took blame that wasn't his. It was his nature to set you free whatever it cost. 
He wanted us to be free at his expense. He did everything he can to keep pure, holy, and be the, the, the lamb without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. Now, for us Jews, we have sacrifices. They had sacrifices until Christ came. And if you brought your lamb, they had to be inspected. You have to inspect your lamb. So you bring it to a priest, and he puts it on a table, and he looks through all the bones and the wool and his eyes, and there's no disease. It must be perfect. Otherwise, it's not, it's not worthy to be sacrificed. Then when he's okay, he has to call another priest. It has to be done by two. So when the lamb of God came, Jesus, he also had to be inspected. So both Herod and Pilate had to publicly declare we can find no wrong in him. It was so severe, he said, bring me some water. And he washed his hands from the public. I can find no wrong in this man and washed his hands. He had to be the lamb without spot. And he did that so that, so that you could be free. He took all the blame for your freedom. So when we take on his nature more and more, it doesn't matter who's right. Because when you get upset about someone that offended you, you go talking to someone else to try and process to see who's right and wrong. Why? Why do you care who's right and wrong? Why don't you be a little wrong for a change? Why don't you be the lesser so God can lift you up? Lay your life down. I mean, he was so unselfish. He's, they just whipped him. 39 lashes. He's weak. He's bleeding. He couldn't even carry his cross. And then when they're trying to nail him, he's praying for those idiot Romans that are hurting him. Forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. And he really meant that. I want to so much have that heart and that nature to think and to be, feel like him. And I'm trying to learn to love my enemies. I can forgive my enemies and I can tolerate the enemies, but to actually love them while they're trying to hurt me all the time is a whole different mindset for me. In, on, Jesus said the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul. And the second, which they didn't ask for, is as great as the first. They didn't want to know the second. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. The one is not any much good without the other. Because John says you cannot say you love God who you don't see if you can't love the ones you do see. They're inseparable. And you are going to be tested every day of your life to love someone that's difficult to love. Jesus said, if you only love those that love you, you do nothing more than the sinners. If you only do good to those that do good to you, you're nothing more than the world. God expects us to be different. The whole ecology, the plan, the purpose of God is very different. We're always looking to see what's right and wrong and what's justified and what's fair and fight for my rights. But Jesus said, if, they, if he slaps you, turn your cheek. You want your coat, give me a cloak also. It goes so much further. The nature of Christ and Christianity is very different. And Gideon had not been corrupted by the world and their system. And that's why he said, go in your strength. I have strength? Yes, you have strength. But you've got a pure heart. You're messed up. You're weak in other areas. You have any confirmation. You're not confident. You're insecure. But you have a pure heart. And this house was birthed with a pure heart. This church, this kingdom, this group that's here that you know, I know from what I've seen. And I'm too old to care about playing games or playing church or saying nice things. I don't care if people like me, don't like me, pay me well, don't pay me. I don't care because I know who I, who I work for. And I'm telling you, if you're here in this church, this house is founded 
with a pure heart. There is no ambition or tradition. Or, and God's tolerated. God has tolerated people doing that for selfish reasons. Because the scripture says if the gospel's preached for selfish money gain, at least the gospel's been preached. So God has a level of tolerance. But this house, I can say with gladness in my soul, has not been founded on that. So if wherever you come from, whatever your heart's desires, you lock yourself into it. That's who you really are. You're being constantly, what's your name again? Chandler. 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 So Chandler. You've said me eight or nine times. I think by the 20th time I might remember it. (laughs) I've got a very good memory. It's just about 10 seconds long. But it's it's good (laughs) for 10 seconds. Chandler. Yes, I'll remember it. 10 seconds later. But you've got a pure heart. You didn't always go the right route. But that's why God locked you into this family. You're going to be an extension of this. You're going to, sure as my name is Ed Trout, you will pastor one of the churches of this, this group. There's no question, in my, no question in my mind. I can give you a date if you want to give me a date too, but I'll charge you more for that. So, <laughs> so I'm here to tell you if you are here with questions in your heart and you have negative, which, which happens about Christians and leaders, and I'm sure you have been, I can honestly assure you without any motive other than the kingdom of God must move forward, you are in a safe place. Perfect, not while you hear it's even less perfect. But it's certainly founded on healthy, godly things. So if you're going to say something negative, take my advice and shut up. <laughs> because it's going to hurt you if you would say something negative, right? Thanks again for listening today. If you'd like to join us in person for church, Renew Life meets every Sunday morning at the YWCA at 6501 University Avenue in Lubbock, Texas. For more information on our ministry, check out renewlifechurch.com or find us on social media. We hope to see you soon.